Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And also today, joining us, we have... Uh, hello, I'm Mike Mason. Mike Mason, we're very pleased to have you with us, the line editor for Call of Cthulhu, for people who don't know. And today we're going to be talking about making monsters and something Mike is an authority on. So we're going to be pleased to have his input. Uh, yeah, looking forward to it. As you might have guessed from uh, what you can hear with your ears, we are recording remotely now. This is the first of the full episodes that we're recording over the internet now that we're all in quarantine. I hope it's their ears they're listening with, because otherwise if it's another body part, something's really gone wrong. Well, we'll save that for the body horror episode next time. Well, what news do we have for the listeners? Certainly all our previous news about conventions this year, <laughs> you can probably cross that out. I mean, who knows? Who knows, really? But yeah. uh, we'll keep that news up to date, perhaps on our show notes. At the very least, do check the websites for the conventions we've mentioned, because they are posting updates fairly regularly. If things get rescheduled or cancelled, they'll say there or on social media as well. But yeah, don't trust anything we've said. That's the important takeaway here. I'm finding that a lot of conventions are now either cancelled or postponed. They are thinking about running some sort of online event. And many conventions are starting to put out notices about online gatherings over a weekend or something to just you know fill a bit of a gap and uh, get people together chatting and playing games so you know that's definitely something to get involved with if you can and i think by the time this one's be going out that we will have done at least a couple of backer only episodes as well so where we've done some informal chats about various topics these are things just basically to fill in the off weeks during the quarantine and provide you with a bit of extra content if you're as bored as we are with not being able to go outside and, and see the rest of the world. And Matt is, is giving me this look of incomprehension, like, outside, why would anyone want to go outside? But, okay, if you're anyone other than Matt and might be getting a bit restless, this could provide you with a welcome distraction. This is heaven. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and whilst we have Mike with us, what news from Chaosium? We are still all working, regardless. Uh, we all work from home. All of Chaosium works from... Uh, from our respective homes, so uh, the dawn never uh, rises on Kersium around the world, so we're always at work somewhere. I'm uh, merrily uh, working away with Lynn Hardy on uh, getting some uh, new Cthulhu stuff out. Uh, we've recently, Harlem Unbound, the second edition, has been released in PDF, and that'll be out later this year in print, uh, but the PDF is available now, as is the new version, the new updated, revised, and uh, all singing on dancing version of Cthulhu Dark Ages. Uh, which has uh, just uh, hit the uh, the electronic pipes in PDF. And again, we'll be out in uh, hardback print later this year. It's a complete revision from the ground up of the, the Dark Ages setting for Call of Cthulhu with uh, lots of new setting material, new scenarios, and lots of useful kind of playable information around, you know, what are the Dark Ages and what, what makes them different to... Uh, playing in the 1920s or, uh, you know, other periods. So that kind of offers a, you know, quite a fresh perspective and a different kind of style of play to some degree from uh, what you may expect. And as we're talking about making a monster today, the thing, the thing that's kept me going for some time now is uh, working on the new edition of Malleus Monstrorum, which is the, the bestiary of Cthulhu mythos monsters and gods. 
and I'm pleased to say I am near the end. The, the, the finish line is in sight. It's a, uh, a big mammoth. Well, I was going to say book, but it's going to be books because I think uh, because of the size and uh, because of wanting to actually add in a lot more gameable material into into the beastry, it's going to probably be two volumes. And there's going to be a volume oh, wow. on monsters and there's going to be a volume on gods. The gods volume in particular is going to be considerably expanded from the old version of Malleus, which were most of the entries were, uh, you know, a paragraph or two. The new one's going to have a lot more. There's a lot more background conjecture about the nature of the different mythos gods, what their purpose is, what their links are, which basically is shorthand for me to say there's loads and loads of plot seeds and ideas and inspiration for how to use the mythos god in your games. Because one of the things I kind of explore in the book is the, the you don't need to necessarily physically put a mythos god in a scenario to have, to have it have an effect on the plot or the game. Mm-hmm. You know, they are... They have multiple, you know, tentacles in a sense, you know, that can interact with play. So I've come up with a lots of different ways for uh, the Mythos Gods to kind of interact with your game. So it's effectively, a, you know, while you can obviously just use it as a, I need a Mythos God, here's some stats, here's what it does. You can also use it as inspiration for, uh, you know, designing your own scenarios and campaigns, building around those kind of things. And there's some classic favourites in there. There's some new stuff. Uh, there's some things that you know you may have thought were one way, but now are slightly different. And at the minute, I'm just actually working on, funnily enough, how to make a monster, the chapter. I literally just finished How to Make a God, <laughs> and um, I'm just about to start actually making a monster. So this episode is really useful for me, so I'll, uh, I'll just uh, copy everything we all say and then use that. That'd be ideal. Well, there you go, there you go folks. We've got the man who wrote the book on it. And I love watching Matt's eyebrows as Mike said it was not going to be one book, but two books. And Matt like went, wah! <laughs> books. I'm going to have to make more room on the shelf. And now on to our main topic, making a monster. We've seen lots of questions online, I think all of us, from new keepers or even fairly experienced keepers, about how do we make monsters? Is there some procedure? Is there some way of making sure that it's appropriate for the adventurer or appropriate for the kind of skill level of the investigators? And between us, we've probably got a fair amount of experience at creating monsters for Call of Cthulhu and just thought it might be interesting to address this and offer some insights from our own experience. And we'll perhaps round out the discussion a little bit at the end by talking through creating a monster or two. So why do we even bother creating monsters? I mean, we just spoke to Mike, and he just told us about the Malleus Monstrorum. And there are loads of, I know that is yet to be published, but there's the old edition, and there's loads of monsters in just the core rulebook. There's a whole bunch of different monsters. So why make more? Because it's fun. (laughs) Well, is it? It is. Is it fun? All right. I don't know about you, Lob, but I really enjoy making monsters. I, I enjoy coming up with perhaps variations on existing ones, but just creating ones out of whole cloth weird things perhaps inspired by folklore or things i've seen in nature or just weird ideas that come to me but yeah it's just an entertaining thing to do because killing 1d4 investigators per round is just isn't enough is this something you do a lot matt i mean scott's just said he really enjoys making new like when we talk about making monsters i think we're not talking about making new ways of thinking about using the Mego or whatever. We're, we're talking about 
complete new monsters. So is that something you do much, Matt? Not much. I can only really think of, at least recently anyway, one instance where I have created something from scratch. And even then, it was taking inspiration from one of Lovecraft's uh, sonnets from the Fungi from Yoggoth cycle, something that hadn't been, at least as, as far as my knowledge goes anyway, um, hadn't been used in any other scenario up until that point. So I've created a version of something that could be interpreted as being what was described in the sonnet and then ran with that. And Mike? I think the joy of making new monsters is is the fact that you can throw something unexpected at your players. People I tend to play with regularly anyway are people that have been playing Call of Cthulhu for some time. So whilst, you know, I still hope I can make a deep one reasonably scary and, you know, an interesting development in the scenario, it's also nice to be able to throw in something unexpected and unknown. Simply as making a monster, you know, you can change the name of a deep one to something no one's ever heard of and use the stats as they are. And that's fine too. But equally, throwing in something that is brand new, that is unique to a particular scenario or situation, there's a lot of fun to be had there too. So it's, you know, playing on the, you know, the unknown is is horrific. So induce fear by creating something new, I guess, is is where I'd come on that. And it's nice to be able to um, tailor a monster to a specific scenario so monsters aren't too generic all the time you know they don't just happen to be there but making something that's you know the heart of the scenario really can tighten the plot and the dynamics and events in the scenario very concisely and make it that much more impactful because it is it's not just any old monster that could be in this scenario it's only this one that is in there because it is causing what is going on and so that can make a that can make the um, the whole plot and engagement much more immersive in that way and one thing you touched on there in passing is creating variants of existing monsters and yeah i mean we're talking mainly here about creating monsters out of whole cloth but i think that reskinning monsters or adapting monsters coming up with variations of them is still part of this that you know if you decide that your your scenario perhaps would suit an aquatic ghoul or something like that yeah and you come up with some variation on on the standard ghoul that doesn't present in the normal way that looks a bit different that certainly behaves in different ways i think that's still you know a form of creating a new monster and something that you know has got the advantage perhaps of what you just mentioned mike of perhaps a wrong footing experienced players because you know of course ghouls don't behave like that and perhaps is a bit creepier as a result. No, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Just um, keeping it fresh, really. But you know, everything you just said, Scott, absolutely. So how about you, Paul and Matt? I mean, do you ever find yourself just reskinning or adapting monsters? Or when you come up with new ones, do you just come up with new ones? I think I rarely come up with complete new ones. I'm usually reskinning old ones. I mean, I would usually come up with a a scenario and then think what do i need to actually make this scenario function and if it could be a ghoul or amigo or a whatever then i'll just kind of slot those in or if i kind of think i could have uh, this monster doing this thing maybe i can have a, a different type of ghoul like you said or sometimes a completely new monster but i just had a look through like a, a dozen scenarios that i think of that i've kind of written and there's not that much 
actual creation of whole new monsters it's usually something that i need to fulfill a role so it's like i need something to possess this person to give a rationale for why they've acted in this way mm. or i need a monster that they've made a deal with or it's often not about the monster so much as about the the filling a role in the story how about you matt yeah pretty pretty similar to be honest i've reskinned a creature only really once and even then that was only in playtest um, mainly to provide stats to fill a gap for a creature that was near to human so i went with the closest near to human creature i could think of that still had a little bit of bite and went with essentially using stats for ghouls and then just describing the outward appearance as being something very different mm. But yeah, otherwise it's a similar kind of thing. It's if there's a creature I have to create from scratch, it normally has to fulfill a particular role in a scenario. Either a, existing creatures don't have the powers that I need it to to make the story work, or it doesn't fit in any other way that really depends on on the story. Really, can I just just talk very briefly aside about reskinning monsters mm. and not whole scale reskinning, but actually the portrayal of different monsters, particularly common ones well-known ones like deep ones and ghouls and all that kind of thing i think we fall into this mentality through role-playing not just with cthulhu but many games that uh, an orc is an orc is an orc and if you apply that to the human race you find that very hard to do because no yeah. two people are the same no two people are the same everyone does different things everyone has different motivations everyone's different agendas different beliefs different ways of acting different ways of speaking different ways of looking no one looks the same. And so, you know, try to apply that to these, what you might term common monsters, because all deep ones do not look the same. They don't all sound the same and they don't necessarily all have the same agenda. They may have an overarching ultimate agenda of raising Cthulhu up, but there's many other agendas beneath that and very different motivations within that. And same for ghouls and so on. You know, so try not to lump them all into one size fits all sometimes, you know, just have some variation in terms of the, the monsters we commonly use anyway, let alone needing to go and create a new one. Just something to think about, really. Thinking even just of deep ones there, some of the portrayals of deep ones I've seen in media, I mean, for example, in Stuart Gordon's Dagon, you've got deep ones in there, some of which look like the classic rendition of, of deep ones from Call of Cthulhu and from The Shadow of Rensworth, but other ones have got tentacles and, you know, other aspects aspects of of undersea creatures other than just you know the depiction that we see in the rule book and yeah i think that's a really kind of cool thing to throw in yeah exactly not just their physical description though but their their mm. motivations as well so you've got all kinds of motivations and attitudes from people i think you'd have the same with with deep ones you'd have some that and we, we kind of used this in Two-Headed Serpent. You know, we had a, mm. a big faction in there, but then we had divisions within that that faction that were sort of set against each other. And you may, with some monsters, you may find some of them, and we see this in uh, Lovecraft Dreamland stories with Pikmin, a ghoul, being an ally to Randolph mm. Carter. Some of these, what we think of as monsters, may actually, for their own reasons, want to side with the the player characters for a while perhaps you know it's not something you can perhaps trust but you know all sorts of surprising things can happen well it's you know it's the classic my the enemy of my enemy is my friend isn't it so i mean you know if the agendas are right and they align then there's no reason why 
even if at the end of the day the the investigators are being used unwittingly by their new ally and being used as fodder or whatever as tools to you know enhance their plan that's still effectively an, an ally for, at least for that time period so yeah but one thing I love doing when I have monstrous allies like that is just reminding the player characters, well, and particularly the players, I guess, that these are monsters. So that, yes, they'll be helpful. Yes, you know, they'll provide you with the directions you need or useful resources or whatever. But every now and then they'll do something like eat one of your friends. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like using Mythos magic. Surely this will achieve what we want. So when we are making a monster, how do we go about deciding what level of challenge? I suppose I'm sort of thinking, you know, a bit in D&D terms. With that, there's very much kind of a, a challenge rating. You know, you're supposed to kind of, all the later rules kind of suggest that you're supposed to give a an enemy that your characters could kind of deal with. But in horror, that's often not the case. We often sort of put up against very strong adversaries. And certainly in Call of Cthulhu, there's, there's, that, there's no concept of that. So do I throw you know, something equivalent to a star spawn in, or do I use a deep one? How do we decide on that kind of power scale and threat level? Is that a factor we consider? That is a factor to consider, but I think the question you have to ask before you get to that point is, what is the purpose of this monster in your scenario? What is it there to do? If it's there to eat the players, then clearly... One, you can have a very short game, so you might as well just put in a star spawn or something of that equivalence because then it will get the job done quickly in a, a nicely horrific manner. However, as I say, that will end your game and that may not be the point of what you're trying to do. I would suggest it's not. So think about what what is the purpose? What is it there to is it there as a as, as a means purely of combat? You know, is it there to do something, injure the players, maybe kill one of them and then run off? Is it there to relate some information is it there to confirm something you know is it to confirm that yeah that wizard down the road is summoning monsters so we need to see a monster to confirm it whatever the purpose may be and then once you've worked out what the purpose is you can then kind of determine the scale what is it there to do as you mentioned, Paul, in D&D, there is this idea that monsters are all there to be fought and they should be fair fights. Yeah, I see this an awful lot on forums like Reddit, where you've got people who are new to Call of Cthulhu, who've come from a D&D background, who are then asking, I've got a group of starting investigators, you know, what is a good challenge to throw at them there? And it is this, this very different paradigm of what kind of game they're playing. And I mean, it, it all, I think, gets further muddied by the fact that if you're playing something like Pulp Cthulhu, there perhaps is the expectation that you do fight the star spawn or whatever it is at the end. You might be in a position to do that. But if it's a standard game of Call of Cthulhu and you do that, then yeah, it's, it's not going to end well for you. I mean, it's certainly something I would consider when I put foes or enemies into a scenario. I'm thinking this is likely to escalate to perhaps a combat situation. Am I putting in things that the player characters could actually take on if I'm going to push this in a, in a kind of combat direction? So that's certainly a factor I would look at. And I'd sort of think, you know, I've got a bunch of monsters like ghouls and deep ones and so on that, you know, we know that player characters can kind of deal with if they're armed and, and prepared and, and ready. And then there are, there's another tier of things like Shoggoths and 
Star Spawn and so on, the, the player characters and Dark Young, the, the player characters have very little chance of being able to, able to take on. And when I go up to like really big things, like, I don't know, a manifestation of Nalathotep or, um, you know, maybe like Star Spawn, some really big monster, I kind of think, well, why would it even bother with the player characters? Mm. If there is some manifestation of some huge mythos monster, mythos perhaps god or whatever, we'd be like ants to it. it we'd just be witnessing it i think and it's more the effect of the the sanity rolls that would that would incur and that's the story it's not a combat thing it's the the witnessing of it the running away the the cowering behind a rock or whatever and the effect that that has on the player characters and then maybe you pick it you know maybe this thing appears and they make sanity rolls and then you cut to the next day and you're just kind of collecting them up and you know one's staggering around the ruins of a burnt out town another one's gone down the sewers or whatever and they come together again but the threat wasn't combat but it could be a massive monster that's an important consideration in terms of why people use monsters in games if you take out the kind of the the kind of fantasy role play mentality of you know they're just there to fight what they are there to do in a lot of the time is to present a threat. And as you say, Paul, that threat could be a physical kind of combat threat, but actually could also be a, you know, exposure threat in terms of their, the character's sanity and, and their, their access or awareness of the mythos. But there are other threats involved, but, but ultimately, you know, having a monster of some kind presents an immediacy and an immediacy of threat because if they know the monster is coming or the monster is down in the well or, then there is a there is an a, an automatic tension that starts to build because that no they know there is a threat to their character to their characters and even if your intention isn't to go into a combat the players don't know that and so they will be part of their head thinking well I don't want to face that because it's going to eat me so there is a th- sense of threat there you can use to build upon within the scenario so I think that threat understanding that threat and what you're trying to do with it you know whether it's physical mental or other is kind of important as well. And also, I think even smaller scale monsters like, you know, you mentioned deep ones and ghouls and so on. Yeah, you get a group of investigators who are armed with shotguns or firearms of any kind, and they can make pretty short work of, of such creatures. But yeah, particularly deep ones, you look at the fiction, one of the main problems they present is, is the fact that they appear en masse. So all right, one or two deep ones isn't particularly scary. A couple of hundred of them, it doesn't matter if you've got shotguns. This isn't something that you're wading through like a group of orcs in D&D. Yeah, and often if you, you say what, Scott, you just said, you apply that to the environment. And as you say, it, it, who controls the environment in this situation? When the players roll up against one deep one with their shotguns, they're kind of controlling the environment. But as you say, mm-hmm. you know, you put, you change that dynamic to, okay, they just shot the first deep one and now, you know, a hundred heads have just appeared out the sea looking at them. That environment has now completely changed. Um, so, you know, think about how you, you know, present them in the locations you find and, and who controls that location, you know, who is, who is mastery of the, uh, of that, uh, of that place, perhaps. And also another factor to take into account here is just how militant that group is, because I mean, it is something of a truism that Call of Cthulhu investigators do wander around with Tommy guns and shotguns and dynamite and so on. But I think in practice, the vast majority of groups, particularly for one shots, don't. I've run Call of Cthulhu for plenty of groups where there's perhaps one guy who's got a handgun and that's it. 
And so in a situation like that, you know, even a single deep one is a threat because the majority of, of the player characters at best are going to be able to put up a slap fight. Matt's like, what was that guy thinking? <laughs> <laughs> forget, forget the handgun, just bring the dynamite. But I mean, you know, circling back a little bit to what we just said about a, a minute ago, we are falling into the trap of talking about combat because it's, a, it's, it's an involuntary reaction when you roleplay monsters to talk about combat. However, you know, particularly in Call of Cthulhu, you know, you could design a monster or have a monster in the scenario purely because you want to run a chase scene. You want you want the situation where the monster is chasing the players and it's their desperate gambit to get out of this. That is actually what the scene is about, not when the players turn around to try and blast it because that's not going to work. They're running away. Or, or maybe they, they are trying to chase down that ghoul at the end of the group to kind of, you know, wrestle it to the ground and try and find out what is going on in the graveyard. You, you can do either or. You know, you can use a, you know, a, a very exciting kind of chase moment, you know, around a monster rather than a combat. You may just want to treat the monster like, you know, one of those NPCs, you know, the old man of the woods who who is there to impart some terrible information, which may be, you know, the monster speaking to them or psychically imparting some information or just the very existence of the monster or what it looks like or what's going on with it, that it relays the information, you know, so they don't naturally have to get into a face-to-face situation with the monster, purely looking at what the monster is doing from afar provides the clue or context for its behaviour in the scenario. The term deal with it has come up a few times there. When I look at monsters, the I think I've mentioned before, some of my favourites are those that say can't be hurt by mundane weaponry, mm. um, are insubstantial, don't take any damage from this type of source or another. Uh, I generally look at how to in that inverted commas, deal with a monster has been more of a puzzle rather than, right, let's resort to combat, break break out the guns and the dice, and have it as something they have to think through rather than just go daka, 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 punch, punch, punch. How does that manifest, Matt? What kind of things do you have the players kind of thinking through? You know, So do you, do you think of a solution? I guess here's, 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 a, here's a question. Do you think of a solution that the players need to find and then kind of give the information to the players until they kind of put the pieces together is that the kind of route you'd go down i'd go down that there's a few of those that it wouldn't be just one single option they've got more more often than not they'd actually have a couple of different ones that would suffice and it's just whichever one they work out first that's the one they normally go with and if we think of a a a novel solution that you hadn't thought of would you kind of work that in on the fly yeah, and if or if anything, if I'm playtesting, scribble that down quickly, and that'll make it into the into the final draft. Then, <laughs> but yeah, I think for keepers in general, that's you know really good advice. That if you've got a scenario and it says that you know there is the the beast of the bog that can only be harmed by bullets that are dipped in the blood of a virgin, and there's perhaps you know a bit of information that might have conveyed that to the investigators but they've overlooked that and they go off and they decide that they're going to try something else perhaps they've done a bit of research about its origins and they're going to make some appeal to the humanity of the person that it once was before it was transformed by the magic of the bog and reach it that way I think it's shitty GMing to just sort of say, nah, they don't have the virgin bullets, they're going to die. You embrace that solution and and run with it. Mm-hmm. Again, understanding what the purpose of the monster in the scenario is really helps with what we're just talking about. If you've written down that the, the monster from the bog, which, by the way, 
I think, you know, calling a scenario the magic of the bug is, is wonderful. Um, <laughs> um, if you know that uh, it can only be killed by bullets dripped in blood, then maybe you can riff off the sense of the blood. Okay, they haven't got bullets, they haven't worked that out, but actually, you know, when the monster rips into an investigator and, and the investigator's blood splashes on it, something weird happens that they can then, maybe through insane mm. insight or just, you know, clever deduction, work out, actually, this is something to do with blood and we need to do something. So they may not, you know, have the same solution that you worked out, but, you know, they can they can riff on it. And maybe that's where a spontaneous use of the Cthulhu Mythos skill could be really handy or whatever. But again, it, it may be, you know, if you know what the monster is there to do, it, it may be, yeah, the monster will defend itself. Clearly, if people run up, shoot pointing sticks at it, it will defend itself. But actually, the point is that it, it just wants to, it just needs to, you know, consume two pints of blood. Let's say that's its purpose in life. Once it's done that, it goes away. It disappears into space or goes to sleep for another hundred years. So working that out allows a non-combat uh, resolution because they can just go and find two pints of blood and leave it in the saucer for the monsters to eat and then it will go away. All jobs done. I'm being very simplistic, but I'm kind of illustrating the point. Mm. I'm just liking the re- the reverse xenomorph effect. There of human blood being the thing that affects the monster. <laughs> yeah. How often do you put monsters in scenarios that just basically cannot be fought? I think the classic, obviously, in Call of Cthulhu, is something like a Hound of Tintalos, where if you put that into a scenario, it's basically just a countdown timer to death. That unless you come up with some really cunning way of dealing with it magically. You can't fight it by normal means, uh, and you know it's just going to tear you apart. Is that the kind of thing that belongs in a Call of Cthulhu scenario? And if you come up with a monster like that, how how do you make its use in a scenario interesting? Thinking of hounds, actually, I've been trying to because uh, we've discussed this before. Them particularly being a a problem for PCs. I'm determined I will get one into a scenario, and I think I've got an idea that I may, may run on the convention circuit when this, uh, when the current situation is all over that involves a hound, and it would be a definitely a non-combat resolution to, uh, to dealing with it. Again, why is the hound in the scenario? The, the hound tends to pursue people that have mucked around with the fabric of time and space in some way. They've been meddling and the hound is almost like a you know a temporal enforcer, if you want to look at it this way. It hunts people down who have meddled with time or whatever and then eats them. Or does it? You know, that's what we assume. Well, maybe it does something else to people. You know, once it's, once it's killed you, maybe your consciousness is taken somewhere else. Who knows? Anyway, I'm riffing. But having a hound in scenario, maybe it is just passing through. And, and maybe the point of it in the scenario is to show the wider mythos or the fact that you don't understand everything and this hound will go by. And yeah, if a player shoots it, it's probably going to turn around and rip their head off. However, otherwise it's going to, you know, like Paul said earlier, it's not going to ignore the people because that's not what it's hunting for. That's not what it's there for. It's passing through, maybe looking for someone else or something else. And so the, the curtain is lifted on the wider mythos and you get the, uh, the commensurate terror and fear from seeing things you don't understand so i think they can play a role in scenarios in that way that don't necessarily mean that they are the you know the heart of the scenario equally one of the best scenarios i ever played and and ran was uh, one called you in your small corner from many many years ago that appeared in dagon magazine and is purely around a hand of tindloss and it is it you know was for me the first non-winnable scenario i'd ever read and the whole point is, yeah, you can't win the scenario. Mm. And as a one-off, 
it works really well because there is no solution. You are you are inevitably faced with your demise and doom at whatever point that is. In a game like Call of Cthulhu, that's okay. I mean, you you wouldn't want to play that every week, but once in a while, it can have a very impactful sense. And also for the players, it kind of teaches them that actually sometimes it isn't winnable and we have to come up with another solution. We have to find the third way, which may be mm. dealing with this at another point in time, we have to leave it. We can't. We we have to understand that some things we cannot deal with, and we have to go away and hope for the best. And there's lots of ways of making that much more kind of enjoyable and satisfactory, rather than just you know leaving it ending open. But that is a possibility uh, within a game like Call of Cthulhu. Not everything is solvable to the nth degree. You have to take victory in degrees sometimes. And so things with like a hand of tin loss or, or you know monsters like that that are effectively unstoppable work out why why is it there what is it going to do what is its effect going to be on the players and and it's your game so a hand of tin loss doesn't have to be unstoppable maybe there is if yeah. they find the right spell they find the right warding or they find another mythos creature to obfuscate themselves or deal with the hound or debanish the hound maybe you know again they're using an enemy to deal with another enemy which opens up other possibilities down the line in terms of consequences you can deal with it don't fall into the trap the only way to deal with a monster is to kill it you know there's many ways to deal with monsters in call of cthulhu you just got to be imaginative and it's easy to forget sometimes in call of cthulhu that the vast majority of monsters you encounter are intelligent creatures and you can perhaps bargain with them, deal with them in other ways. So perhaps if there is a hound of Tindalos that's stalking you, perhaps you can find something else that it wants. You know, some way of placating it, of putting it off your scent, because it is intelligent. You could also use it in other ways. I mean, just thinking about it off the top of my head, I'm sort of picturing a scenario where you've got a classic Elizabethan-style demonologist who has basically summoned a hand of Tintloss and has got it trapped in a circle. And, you know, is perhaps using it as a source of, of knowledge of time and space. A group of investigators coming across that, and, you know, perhaps the hound is on the verge of finding some way of breaking out of the circle and exacting terrible revenge on everything around. You know, what can they do with that teen time bomb in their midst? Well, what about, you know, you're invited to your uh, friendly professor's house because he's invented a time machine. And, um, you know, you go off on these time adventures. It's all great, wonderful till you realise the time machine is some sort of hand of tin losses harnessed into some sort of like <laughs> box that when you open the box, you realise it's a hound in there. Uh, yeah, but, you know, there you go. That's a good one. Like a dog sled, yeah, but yeah. with hounds. <laughs> So we've talked about a lot about the concepts of what these monsters mm. are, but one of the things of creating a monster is the stat block. You know, when we look at a mm. published scenario, there's always a, a block of stats, but there's a bunch of numbers. We've talked a bit about combat. There's there's different types of fighting attacks that it might have spells. There'll be a description. There'll be the way it behaves. Things like that that are all codified and written down for the keeper to use. So I guess the question is, we're looking to advise people on how they might do this themselves. Is there any advice on how to do that bit of the creating a monster? I think I'd use some good advice I was given, which was always think of it in relation to human stats. So if you're creating, say, something that's a bit like a deep one, well, they're going to have a size that's a bit like a human then, maybe a little bit bigger, but not too much big. Just use everything in terms of scale of relativity to what humans would be capable of on their 
dice rolls. You uh, took the words out of my mouth, Matt. Absolutely. Use the human scale. Mm. If the average human is roughly, you know, size 60, then if you want your monster to be a humanoid, then it's going to be somewhere in the 60 to 100 scale of size. If you want your monster to be twice the size of a human, then it's going to be at least 120 probably a little bit more. And this is where the uh, percentage values on size can actually be quite an easy you know, rule of thumb. You know, you look at how big is Cthulhu? Well, do a quick division by 60. Roughly, it's that many times bigger than a human. And so you can work out your scale of monsters. And I tend to, in my head, I can't keep it simple. They're either human, somewhere between, you know, twice to four times the size of a human, or they're bigger than that, or they're completely massive. Mm. And that's the kind of four, yeah. four scales I use. Once you work out the rough scale, it's four times as big as a human, roughly, then you then it's easy to work out because you've got the size stat sorted. And once you've got the size stat, you can then basically do a kind of a comparison. To, well, it, if it's going to be four times as big as a human, then the size is going to be at least twice as strong as a human, probably four times the strength of a human. So I'll just multiply all those by four, see what that gives me, and then and then you know do a bit of fiddling to make it what I want to do. And you've you pretty much got the physical stats sorted. Then it just comes down to, is this a human-like intelligence? Is it beyond human-like intelligence? There you go. Is it completely bestial? So it's got you know very low intelligence. And again, it's, you know a scale of three there. Very quickly, you can work out roughly. I think it's going to be about it's going to have intelligence for about eighty or whatever it may be. And similarly, you know, is it a magic-using creature? Therefore, I probably want to give it a good pow because I want to give it a lot of magic points because I want it to cast a load of spells or use some abilities that use magic points. If it's not, then it doesn't need much of a power. You know, like a zombie, it's like power zero five, I think. Yeah, because it doesn't cast spells. It doesn't do anything magical. It's a brainless kind of thing. Where, you know, whereas a deep one or a ghoul is comparative to a human in terms of power. And, and you know, they can cast some spells, but not loads of them. Whereas a, a dark young is bigger, it's more connected to the, the mythos in that sense in terms of its progenitor and as a wider access to spells, it's going to have a much bigger power. And particularly on all of these stats, once you've kind of done your initial kind of, this is what I think the stats roughly look like, then think about the game. Then think about what the monster is going to do in the game in terms of how can the investigators match up to this in terms of, if it's a spell, it's going to be an opposed power roll. So if the power is going to be 90 and above, that means an investigator is going to need to make an extreme power roll to even, you know, knock this off. So, you know, do you want to make it completely impossible for the players to do anything? Is it, is it If it's going to grab them in its tentacles and they're going to need to make a strength roll to break three, its strength, you know, will will decide what the difficulty of that role is. So if you don't want, if you want it to be, you know, dramatic and action orientated, but you want to give your players a chance to kind of get into trouble, but also have the potential to get out, then you want to make the strength role hard rather than necessarily extreme. Or, you know, they, they can only do it on a zero one or whatever it may be. Because that's the drama of your game. If it's completely impossible for the players to do anything, then it's going to be a bit dull at some point. You've got to try and bear in mind, how do the players interact with this? How do you make this fun? This is what it's about. It's a fun game, you know. How do you make this fun? How do you make the interaction? You want to make it scary. You want to make the monster a threat. But equally, you want to give the players some agency to be able to, you know, if they go wrong and they run into the monster and they and they foolishly decide to attack it, 
then yeah, you could kill them all off straight away, but that's the end of your game. Wouldn't it be mm. better to let them have a go? They realise they've gone in over their heads, but they've managed to pull off a couple of hard rolls or maybe one extreme roll to, to get free, and then they run off. And then they can now think about how they actually should be dealing with the situation rather than just going wrong or getting killed. Well, and again, I mean, we're talking about intelligent creatures here. So if you've got a group of investigators that are running up, shooting at it with weapons, this doesn't have to be a fight to the death. They get a few good shots in on, you know, even some massive creature and the creature thinks, I'm not doing this at the moment. And perhaps the creature retreats. Yeah, the creature retreats. Or... You know, they, they all get knocked out or there's some spell that makes them all fall down and then the monster just leaves them because it doesn't care about them. Or, you know, now they are now been pulled back into the monster's lair. The monster's off somewhere, but they're now caught in the lair and you've now got a new scene of what are they going to do to get out of here? What clues do they find while they're in the lair that help them later on? You know, all that kind of stuff could happen. And how much, if it's just for your own game, because we're not talking about giving advice for people necessarily writing for publication we're just thinking of them writing creating monsters for their own games i think how much would you actually codify and advise people to codify these stats when they're just running it for a few friends in an evening and they've just thought up this new monster would you crunch those down all into numbers or would you just run with some sort of loose concept of it and do it on the fly I'd either do it on the fly or I'd quickly reskin something that was in the book. So if I were looking at creating some human level threat, I'd probably quickly reskin a ghoul or a, a deep one or something like that. Or if it was something larger, I'd possibly just reskin a dark young. I guess the creative part or the tricky part then comes with thinking of the differences there. So the things that make it more than just a monster or at least more than just something that's going to beat up or kill the player characters so you know whether it has got telepathic abilities that can warp their sense of reality whether it can infect them with disease or poison them whether it can suck their blood out whether it can walk through walls or behave in or fly or behave in weird ways or teleport these things that sort of make the creature unique and uncanny and more of a threat than just something to be beaten up. And yeah, I think those are the things probably you have to think of more in advance than just the stats, because the stats, I mean, yeah, as you say, you can either wing it or just crib them from somewhere else. But you, Matt, do you like get everything written down before the game, you know, in terms of a new monster? Yeah, I'll, I'll generally, if it's something that new from scratch I'm coming up with, I'll jot down some figures for key stats, ones that will help derive other stats. So if, if it is something that's going to be a physical component to deal with it, then I'll make note of their strength, con and size, so I can work out hit points and, and so on and so forth. Or if it's one that's going to be a magical battle to get rid of it, then make sure assign power and work out how many magic points it's got but then fill in the other bits later as and when I need them because those those other stats can be... Oh, and decks as well because it's always... Well, yeah, I was going to say normally it ends up having a, uh, either a dex of 95 or 100 just so I can say, right, I go first unless you've got a gun. I mean, that's that can be quite important though, the decks. All you need to know is, as Matt says, does it go before the players or does it go after? Because if it goes after, you do give the players a round to kind of have a go and realise how ineffectual things are before it really smashes into them. So it does give them a chance to kind of say, hang on, we're in the wrong fight here, guys. We need to run away now. You know, you give your players a chance if you do it that way. Whereas 
if you allow the monster to go first, then if it is a mincing machine, it is going to mince your players. Or maybe it isn't mincing machine. You're trying to just demonstrate what the monster could do. That's cool as well. But um, but you know, thinking about where the players go in that turn. Okay, you guys. The one thing I struggle with more than anything else, particularly when it comes to publication, but I guess this applies just as much to people creating monsters for their home campaigns, is coming up with names. Is pretty tricky with NPCs as well. But how do you guys come up with names for your monsters? If anything, I give it a, I give it a classification rather than rather than name, like formless thing or undescribable one. Something like that, rather than rather than coming up with an obscure, weird like, hey, this is a Chthonian or this is a Tindalonian or any grandiose exotic thing like that. No, I, I kind of leave it almost a little bit more vague, as if I don't really know what the hell this thing is. <laughs> How about you, Mike? I think there's two ways you think about names of monsters. You can think about what you what I would term their mythos name. You know, what is their you know, what is their official mythos name that Cthulhu would call them by? That could be some collection of vowels or consonants that we can approximate into some sort of sound. But more importantly is what would a human call this? So they see the the demon from the sea arise. They aren't going to call it a deep one. They're going to call it the fish frog man or the, the fish man or the glowing green demon from the deep. I don't know. what They're going to make their own name up. And, and so I tried to think about, well, what would, what would humans call this thing? And you have kind of have this kind of secret subcategory. So there are some humans, and particularly player characters, that maybe have started to get some Cthulhu mythos and they've got access to some tomes or whatever. So they, they, they know a little bit. And so you can use that with and against them by saying, you know, if they make their Cthulhu Mythos role, you can just say, yeah, it's a deep one. But you could say, actually, this this reminds you of um, the writings of uh, Gustav you know, Mendelssohn, who 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 described who he he described these um you know these uh, things as the uh, diamond fish. I, I'm making this up, <laughs> <laughs> the diamond fish or whatever. I'm taking note. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, but you, know, you can kind of throw in a few mythotic terms without necessarily being specific. You can say that this 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 reminds you of the law regarding the Tindalosians, and that's mm. all you need to say. Yeah, and then they can decide to call it the, the frog from Tindalos or whatever. But you know, what would a human call this, or what would a, a generations of human cultists who have worshipped this thing now call it? They call it the master, probably. Mm or the Lord, or whatever it may be. They don't necessarily have a name for it. They just call it the Great One. And I think, actually, that's quite well reflected in some of Lovecraft's stories, because if you think of a lot of the creatures that that he's got there, I mean, the Deep Ones, I mean, that is very much sort of a human descriptor for an alien thing, or ghouls, or the fungi from Yogurth. All right, you've got the place name in there, but it's a descriptor. It's not like a proper name. Even then, I think there's crawling ones that are kind of mentioned in the is it the festival? Yes. But then they're not exactly just referred to by that name. It's just yeah. the thing. How about you, Paul? Do you have any cunning tips for coming up with names? I can't really think I've done this. Just much like Matt, if it needs a name, if it's some sort of possessing spirit, I've perhaps used the name the master or, you know, it's what people would refer it to it as. Mm. Lovecraft was great at coming up with these weird names, Nalathotep and Cthulhu and these strange words and when other people do it they just seem to come up with this weird string of mostly consonants that 
I don't know. It just seems like a pale imitation. I think the best counter-argument to try to come up with your own Lovecraftian names is reading any of Brian Lumley's mythos stories, because he tries to do the same thing as well. But yeah, it, it is exactly what you say. It just comes across as a rather shoddy echo of what Lovecraft did. He probably just watched lots of episodes of Countdown and just took notes of all the word, uh, the letters that came up in that order. Well, we've got a few minutes left, so should we have a go at just improvising one off the cuff? So where would we start? If we, I mean, usually I would start with a scenario and some sort of role that I want this thing to fill, but I don't know. If we're just going to come up with a monster off the cuff, it's not something I would normally do. So where do you begin? One thing I tend to rely on an awful lot when coming up with monsters is either looking at things from folklore and mythology or looking at things from nature and then coming up with horrible twists on them. So, yeah, I was thinking about this a a little earlier and thinking about shrikes and butcher birds, these birds or a couple of different species of birds that behave in very similar ways across the world that basically capture live prey, insects or small vertebrates and stuff like that, and then just impale them on thorns on trees and then just come back and feed on them. In some cases, you know, they just do this while the creature's alive. In some cases, they do it because it's perhaps a type of grasshopper that needs to decompose a bit before it's safe to eat. In other cases, it's just because they're building up a larder. And, I mean, this just strikes me as being such an inherently horrible behaviour that I'd, I'd really love to see a monster do something like that. Kind of reminds me of my parrots when they keep throwing up on a mirror and then going back to eat it later. Okay, I totally <laughs> didn't know what you were going to say. <laughs> No, I was thinking of uh, a scenario of yours, Matt. I think it's the Servants of Glarkey and, uh, you know, the spikes Mm. through somebody Mm -hmm. and they're still kind of alive, but they're on a spike. So if I wanted that in a scenario, that's I'd probably possibly use some sort of twist on that, Scott, because that's where that's (laughs) taken my mind. Whereas for me, where it took me was I was coming up with some sort of kind of Southwestern American desert variant of the Dark Young, the sort of giant cactus monster that was just going around and paling people on its own spikes, just kind of wandering around the landscape with all these dying and decomposing forms on there, perhaps sucking the essence and intelligence out of them and just incorporating them into itself. I love that there'd be some very twisted version of Mezcal that you could get from, uh, from squeezing the life out of these <laughs> That, that is filled with the memories and essences of the people who died on the. Oh, country. I like that. Here's an idea. If you've got living beings that are impaled on these walking cactuses' spikes, not only is it leaching their sustenance, you know, their hit points or whatever, and they'll just become desiccated husks in time, but maybe more importantly, what it does, it leaches their life energy. So it actually sucks oh, yeah. magic points. So it's actually building up its reserve of magic points by doing this. So it's able to use those magic points in some way, right? whether that is in terms of casting spells or some other kind of power or effect, it could use it that way. I mean, that would that would suppose that it is a quite an intelligent mm-hmm. kind of creature, or you could go the other way where it isn't leeching, it's just leeching their hit points basically. So it's much more of a bestial thing. You know, you could go either end of the scale with that in that sense. And if you had this in a scenario, you could perhaps have a human cult that was around there that was actually perhaps tricking people into going near this thing or perhaps even offering them up as direct sacrifices. Perhaps they get something in return. I mean, you know, you joked about the mezcal, but perhaps they do get some kind of nectar out of the cactus afterwards that allows them to draw upon the power of the people they sacrificed. I was, say, I was suddenly thinking, this is turning into Little Shop of Horrors, isn't it? We've got some cultist that's got this uh, got this plant that's saying, feed me, cultist, feed me! 
I like the idea of yes to all of that. But I'd also have, you know, particular cultists who are like, they see this as the final form of enlightenment, you know, mm. transcendence. They throw themselves upon the spikes because in that moment of transcendence, when this kind of mescal type thing gets into their heads and they, they see, they see reality in that instant, they have attained transition in the cult's heads. So, you know, they, they want to do that. They think yeah. it's a great thing. They also realise, you know, that it's a good thing to throw other people on. But that kind of like fervid kind of belief drives them. I want me some mezcal now. (laughs) So if we're going to go for this cactus shrike or whatever you want to call it, how would you go about statting that up in your game? One thing we haven't touched upon, I mean, this might be a good chance to do, is where you do have a special ability like it's sucking the memories and souls out of people impaled upon its spikes. How do you go about codifying that in game terms? If it's trying to take things from people against their will, then you're usually bringing in some kind of opposed power role, perhaps. And if it's draining a resource, if it's a physical resource, it's perhaps hit points. If it's a mental resource like their memories and and so on you could perhaps say it's draining magic points that aren't going to be replaced until they're removed from the spike so once you've drained all the magic points you then start draining hit points and ultimately that the person will die or it could be draining power could be draining power directly into itself maybe intelligence yeah i was cautious against intelligence because it's it's quite hard mechanic. Well, it's easy mechanically to say your character has just dropped 20 intelligence. It's mm. actually quite hard to role play your character that way. So I, I tend to try and avoid that because it just makes it harder on the player to sort of say your character is now less intelligent. Well, what does that mean in terms of playing the character? I prefer to sort of do magic points and power or strength and things, things that are much more tangible to, to kind of have a, an impact on play. We've already worked out the size of this thing, more or less, haven't we? We've said it's bigger than a human because humans have to be able to be impaled on its spikes. So it's going to be at least twice the size of a human. So probably more likely four times the size of a human to make that kind of make sense. So in terms of stats, you've, you've kind of got a baseline there. It's four times the size of a human. So that's going to be a minimum of a 220 size. There you go. It might be easier to start off with say something like a dark young as a template for this and and then just modify things as you see fit like the description and the the abilities what we haven't touched upon perhaps with this is things like movement i mean is this thing just anchored one place and relies on people coming along and feeding it or does it perhaps scuttle slowly across the landscape in search of prey can it even put on huge bursts of speed to try to catch its prey Again, I think that you'd look at how you want this to kind of work in the scenario in the plot. Maybe it is, most of the time it is rooted, rooted in one spot, but one way it can burn these magic points or energy that it's getting is to allow it to move. So it has to spend spend magic points to move. So it can move, but it doesn't do it very often. You give a reason for why it wants magic points as well. It uses them to move. Or perhaps it uses magic points to split off little parts of itself and create these temporary bits that can go off and capture prey and then bring them back and stick them on the spikes. Yeah, that sounds good too. And I guess the last thing there is thinking about what kind of sanity hit you'd take from seeing this. I don't see it being a particularly big one because essentially on the surface, it's an odd-looking cactus. I mean, I've, I've seen some dodgy-looking plants before, but I wouldn't say any of them would be massively sanity-shattering. 
But on the other hand, if it's covered with withered corpses and people screaming in agony, that, yeah, I, I'd say might bump it up to say something like a D6, D20. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean certainly. I, I think you know, and there's no and there's no harm in having different sanity losses for the for different appearances mm. of the creature. So as you say, Matt, the initial the baseline sanity may actually be like a zero slash one d four. I don't know, or, or nothing even. But as you say, when it's you know, gathering loads of rotting corpses on it, then the sanity is going to go up, and you can have two or three sanity lines for a monster depending on the situation. Perhaps you know when the monster is actually coming towards you covered in rotting corpses, that's going to be more horrific than mm-hmm. just standing there covered in rotting corpses. You know, so th- there's three kind of potential sanity losses you can apply. And again, using, as Scott says, you know, if you're working from a basis of the dark young, you can start to extrapolate some sanity loss perhaps from there as, a, as you know, say, well, it's not quite that, but that gives me a rough idea. And I can I also caution, in a lot of older Call of Cthulhu uh, sanity losses, you do get a 1d20. I always change that to 2d10 because that means there's at least a minimum of two, not one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I would always, you know, always caution to to use it in multiples of tens rather than a 20. And I think in the case of something like this as well, it wouldn't be out of place to put a little bit of instruction there for the keeper as well for an additional sanity loss if someone does find themselves impaled on one of the spikes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, we would like to say thank you to lots of people. We'd like to start by saying thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast. And thank you very much to everyone who is backing us. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yeah, first off today, a big thanks going out to Jan Engel. And also a thanks go out to uh, the wonderfully named Plague is the Wise. And thank you very much to Malcolm Cool. And thanks to Christine Fisher. And thanks to Andreas DeVore. And thank you very much to Stefan Salin. Thanks to Christian O'Dell. And thanks to Lucas Stibard. And thank you to the singularly named Snitch. And thanks to Evelyn Moreau. And uh, we should say that if you want to join us and be a backer on Patreon at the moment while we're hibernating to keep off COVID-19, we are putting out some bonus episodes. We put one out last week. It was horror films that we've seen recently that we thought might be of interest to our listeners and a bit of inspiration for how they might feed into your Call of Cthulhu games. Currently, I'm running a live game on Twitch on a Tuesday night in the UK, about eight o'clock UK time. And with the previous episodes going up onto YouTube, um, so you can watch. Uh, and that's a playtest of a brand new campaign that isn't published yet called The Dead Within, which is set in 1920s Russia. And we're just past the midway point in that. And uh, you can certainly catch up uh, with the previous episode on YouTube or just join just join straight in. We do a bit of a recap sometimes and follow the action. And my uh, colleagues in Australia are also running a live play of a cold fire within the Pulp Cthulhu campaign. So if you're thinking, thinking of wanting to kind of see what that campaign's about, maybe considering if it's something you want to run or how, you know, some ideas for running it, then they're running that again live at Twitch. They're in Australia, so it's actually early in the morning in the UK. But again, all of their episodes are going onto the Chaosium YouTube channel, so you can watch uh, a coal fire within there too. So, uh, you know, check them out. Okay, well, stay well, and until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. Farewell from me. And uh, a toodaloo from me.
blasphemous tomes. <laughs>